Welcome to this week's Monday meeting. Today is May 20th, 2019. Monday meetings are a chance for motion designers all around the world to connect and ask questions, share inspiration, or hear presentations and interact with industry leading artists on an equal playing field. Today's topic is R&D, also known as research and development, either for professional projects or personal projects, kind of what's your workflow with that? Do you try to integrate it into professional projects? If you do, how do you do that, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, a few things before we start, uh, if you have any questions or comments, um, you can Raise your hand by you can monitor that uh, and call on you if you have a mic and video if you want to ask that question live. Or there's also a, a way to raise your hand within Zoom if you click the manage participants or the participants uh, little icon it should allow you to raise your hand through that. Uh, as usual, this call will be recorded and posted. If you have any concerns about something that was said on the call, if it's under NDA or something like that, let us know and we can uh, take that out of the recording for the release. Um, any sort of comments or questions that might sound spammy or whatnot, we'll just mute you. So, yeah. Uh, other than that, Camp MoGraph is still uh, underway. The early bird ticketing's underway. So that ends in 11 days. So if you haven't grabbed your early bird priced ticket, get them before they're gone. Uh, we've got a lot of interest, more and more people buying tickets and cabins, so it's been great. Uh, just wanna say thanks to the sponsors that are helping us with that, which are Maxon, School of Motion, Red Giant, and Pixel Plow. Uh, we're looking forward to hosting everybody here in Vermont uh, in October, so hopefully we'll see you all there. Um, other than that, we have our Discord server and our newsletter, so be sure to sign up for those. And if you want to rock one of these cool little five panel hats, we have these in our little Etsy shop thing or whatnot we have on the website. So anyway, uh, enough of that bullshit. Um, cool. So the main discussion today is research and development. And this kind of came up uh, a few weeks back or maybe last week or two weeks ago just about you know, trying to figure out new workflows or new techniques or new visual styles or whatnot and kind of the whole R&D process within your projects. Um, you know, personally speaking, I find it easier to do that within a personal project. Um, when I'm working on a client project, it's a little bit tougher for me to carve out that time for R&D. I know it's very important, but it always seems like the wheels are, you know, turning real fast from the get-go from my standpoint for a lot of client projects. So I'd be curious to open it up for discussion to all you guys to see how you integrate R&D into your process, you know, personal or professional projects. Um, so with that being said, we've got quite a few people on the call today, which I'm stoked about. Um, so I'll just kind of start calling on some people and, and see if, uh, if you guys have any thoughts on this. So uh, I reached out to Kevin earlier to see if he had any thoughts because he's been doing a lot of great work recently and I'd be curious to hear if you do any sort of R&D um, in your process there. Yeah, um, we've been uh, doing pretty much the bulk of the major commercial projects for uh, laptop and gaming peripherals company called Razer. Um, and over the course of, I guess, the last 10 jobs, we've had, uh, some pretty tight timeframes, but then also some really fun ones like the Kraken, uh, headphones commercial where we got to really play around a lot. And, uh, that was, that was always refreshing. Um, when you have something in front of you and you're not quite sure what to do i guess research and development could also be largely categorized as like uh, an undefined playground pretty much because that's what it seems like i don't know like for us it's uh, a lot of fun to just play and experiment and sometimes under tighter time frames like we just don't get that so yeah i mean it's definitely a part of our 
process uh, as much as possible. I know for me personally, like anytime I want to learn something, I give myself a arbitrary project and try to just do it from start to finish and, and learn and see what happens. Uh, that's how I learned Redshift. When I first got introduced, I just threw the wall at it and tried to break it as much as possible and see like what is the longest render time I can get out of this thing that's supposed to be ridiculously fast. And it was hard to break it as, compo as compared to like physical where like you can get easily three day render times. <laughs> so <laughs> totally. that was, that was, that was a lot of fun. That was the most uh, R and D I think I've done, but yeah, I mean like just defining an arbitrary project to force yourself to learn something I think has uh, been the primary way that I go about R and D myself. Um, otherwise it's setting out for some specific goal or like we need to figure out some way to do this effect or communicate this. Um, let's figure it out, play around, just drag things around and, in cinema and laugh at the viewport when things go crazy. <laughs> you build any R and D time into your project timelines? It largely depends on, on the job when it comes through the door. So um, ideally we like to go through like, all right, so the, the initial treatment phase and the bid uh, while we're in the bidding process, we, we do bill for uh, creative development time if it if it's allowed uh, with with Razor, for instance, sometimes we get uh, emergency calls where they're like, "We need this in a week because something happened," and then you you just don't get that time, and it right. just comes down to like, "What what do we need to do? What's the absolute minimum? How do we get that done?" Um, but in an ideal setting, yeah, there's at least a few months of time for the job coming in, us to settle in the pitch, get the boards together get that approved and then when that's there it's like the the boards and the style frame process are also uh some of the r&d because we'll try to in most cases build for the job as we're as we're going so when we're uh in the concept phase like we're trying to build as much as possible that we're gonna use in production but sometimes that's just not the case and you just got to get some style frames out quickly and and make things that look good um but yeah uh, it's definitely in the timeline when we can afford it. Yeah, totally. Um, does anyone else have thoughts on R and D in their process or whatnot? And it doesn't, you know, we have people in here from 2d to 3d, you know, it can be really any project uh, or, or any workflow. Um, I think we, or at least I, always think of like R and D as like, Oh, let me mess around in cinema or whatnot. Um, but the same could go for anything in after effects or fusion. If you're like, you know, messing around with comping stuff or whatnot. Hey, I'm happy to jump in. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to jump in. Um, yeah. the, um, the thing that most interests me about R&D is the, uh, the highest challenge, you know, setting on that, which is that you're on the clock and you've already pitched a um, concept that is, uh, that you knew you needed to do some R&D to deliver. And there you are with the job having to deliver it within a certain amount of time and you don't exactly know what your pipeline is for that, right? That's like the highest challenge. And, um, and that's pretty terrifying, honestly. I mean, I'd rather take, you know, I appreciate what Kevin was saying and that he takes, you know, has, has months in order in that gap to, you know, figure that out. And um, the reason why I, I've been listening to some interviews and there's been a couple that have really stood out for me, like, wow, you know, these guys um, did this on the clock, right? <laughs> and that, that is completely, um, you know, high accomplishment, like Caitlin, for example, Caitlin Kadju interview, um, she was mentioning that she was in a, a job where she couldn't uh, use Octane, I think for hardware reasons, and so she ended up using the standard renderer and kind of the client was fine with it and like she just knew she could use standard renderer to finish the job and she did it. I'm like, 
How do you know that? Because <laughs> I don't know whether you guys have tried to use the standard render lately, but it, you know, it's going to maybe not do what you want. So um, I guess that's the kind of process that, uh, that I find really admirable and um, just wondering whether that's super common or whether that's just uh, like a few shooting stars can do that under the clock and the rest of us kind of take our, our months and months to <laughs> figure it out. So. Yeah, I think it, you know, R and D can really go the entire spectrum of, you know, R and R and D with like visuals uh, and then R and D with like technical know-how R and D of like rendering and, all that, you know, I think yeah. it's kind of a wide net. And um, Ben in the chat uh, made a good point of, you know, are people confusing the terms R&D with brainstorming? He says to him, R&D seems very goal-oriented uh, goal where, you know, how do I build this setup to do X effect, whereas brainstorming might be more of playing around with some tools and trying to figure out uh, what looks you can get and, and whatnot. Um, so I think, you know, there's, that's a good point too, you know, brainstorming R and D, I think it, it really could go, you know, um, either way, you know, depending on what kind of terminology you want to use. But um, similar to what you just mentioned, Elizabeth, like R and D could also be, you know, um, researching and developing like new techniques for a renderer per se, not necessarily a, a, an effect or a visual style. Yeah, if you break down R&D, like uh, the research aspect can can pretty much play into getting, you know, like gathering all the information you, you might need um, for something, or it could also be um, for making decisions. And that uh, also plays into the development aspect, which isn't always about uh, the technical aspects. It's about making informed decisions or creative decisions and uh, making like, the, the choices that are going to shape the thing. For instance, with uh, character design, often I'll start with like just thumbnails of things. Like I'll open up Photoshop, I'll grab a, a random paintbrush, and I'll just start painting shapes in there. And what I'm looking for are interesting forms and silhouettes because that's, that's all it is, is just silhouettes, little blobs of stuff. And if I find something interesting, I'll grab that and I'll move it over into another doc and say like, okay, that caught my eye and then I'll do that probably for a half an hour and I'll end up with like 20 different little blobs of stuff that all have these interesting shapes that caught my eye and that can inform design decisions about aesthetic about uh, broader shapes for instance like if it's a creature is it a larger uh, body is it got a, a weird alien head kind of thing you know all those things are if it's like robotic or armor or hard surface uh, you can sort of like it, get decent looking shapes that have aesthetic appeal to you from thin air at the very onset of your project. And that will help you sort of like uh, have a stepping off point, I guess, and mm -hmm. kind of go from there and, and guide it that way. But also the research aspect plays in, for instance, I uh, just recently did a character for a project and we, it needed to be historically accurate to uh, some Chinese culture, some Asian culture things. And I had to do a boatload of research, even down to like what type of designs and stuff go on the hilts or the little tassels that come off of uh, these wushu uh, tai chi swords, you know? <laughs> and that's, that's a part of R&D. It's not, it's not all... Uh, playing around with effects and effectors and stuff. If you have a project and you need to guide it to a certain place, whether you, whether or not you know what that place is or not, uh, I think the actual creative decision-making process also falls into R and D. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And just being able to like iterate, right. Like, like you were saying with the shapes and whatnot, I mean, just, iterate lots of different versions of stuff in a way, you know, that's kind of looked at R and D all that kind of wrapped into one. Um, but, and I think that's, what's really kind of helped a lot of people you know, the last few years with the third party renderers in, in 3d is just being able to visualize stuff at a faster pace. And that, you know, either increases the amount of R and D you can do in a given time or 
also might, you know, be able to, you're able to kind of sell that into your process a little bit more because now you actually get that visual feedback faster and faster and you can refine ideas and make that happen. Um, in yeah. A yeah. It's, it's all about like informed decisions and the, the sooner right. you're able to see something, the, the more you can decide whether or not you like it or it right. needs to change or is it good. Um, yeah. I, I really like what, um, uh, Elizabeth was just saying about the, the Caitlin interview as well. Uh, there was, I think Eric Sponza had, it's kind of buried in the middle of a presentation they give, they gave at one point and they were working on a Nike shoe ad and they had mentioned that they had taken six months and in their process of doing style frames, they would do at least, I think it was like one or two a day, but however it ended up adding up, uh, everybody at, at their team would just R and D like just invent things and have fun and play around for six months. And at the end of the thing, they came out with something like a, a thousand different style frames that they ended up using in production. That was wow. nuts to me. That was, that, it was like right when we were, uh, Jeff and I, my partner were just talking about that we need to start including more time for development. And then we heard that and it was just like, <laughs> Oh, that's how other people are doing it because that's insane. But you don't always get six months. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I I thought it was it was a, it was pretty eye opening. I love hearing about other people's R and D processes. I'm so excited to like hear what other people are. Yeah, I don't know. It, Penny, do you want to jump in because you you know you spent a lot of time kind of in house places and now you're freelancing. I would be interested to hear your take on the R and D process and how you've managed to use it in your processes. Uh, you know, when I used to live in LA and I worked at like shops, um, I felt like every single job I worked on was pretty much like, come in, here's the problem, do it. Uh, so like I got used to like that 10 years, it was almost never doing R and D. Um, like it was like, you come in, the R and D was like the act of creating whatever they wanted you to create. Um, it wasn't until this last job that I had when I was working at Rooster Teeth and I was the comp CFX lead that like, I was just typing this, that, uh, um, we actually had time to like see the scripts ahead of time and then kind of spot the challenges. And then I would assign different effects to different people and be like, Hey, I don't know the best way to do this, but we only have after effects. So try to figure it out, you know? And like, maybe this is the thing that you do with particular, maybe you draw it. We had like a 2d, uh, animator, cell animator, you know, like, and so I would assign him to do some, and I would assign some to like another comper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the R and D thing was all about like, this is a playground, see if you can scrounge around for some old shots, integrate it, see if it works. And then when we showed it to the director, uh, it would, like if he liked it, um, it would become another phase, you know? So like that R&D phase might be uh, over at a certain point and then you'd shelf it until that thing came back. And then when the real shot happened, you might have to continue it a little bit, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's so interesting to me how uh, in motion graphics, like it's such a nice thing that any of these companies or any of these artists get any time to work on anything. That's not like the morning of the day that it's due, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've always struggled with that because I feel like at least in my world, when I'm hired to do a project or whatnot, a lot of the stuff is already kind of ironed out. And if anything, for me, the R and D phase is just like, all right, they already established a certain look, like how am I going to figure that out? Whereas, you know, there's a lot of shops um, and studios nowadays that essentially, you know, win a bid or a project from a company and then build that, you know, X amount of week, time frame into the schedule to create R&D that can really drive the look of the entire video. But, you know, um, trying to sell that in uh, before any of the visuals are really locked in, like, I'm sure is a challenge. And I'd be, you know, curious to know if anyone in here has gone through that. Um, it, that came up last week. And I think we're going to try to reach out to some people that work at man vs. machine or, you know, uh, Yambo's in the Slack and they do a lot of stuff where they just kind of do a lot of iterations of visuals. And then that from there, they really determine how the video is going to play out and look. So it's to me very interesting to sell in an idea without many visuals and then have that time and have your client trust that you can develop some interesting visuals 
um, and visual style that's going to make them kind of stand apart from their competitors. Um, but just monitoring the chat as well. Um, Pedro was saying that there's room for R and D when you're hired as a creative who, who's got input and your ideas are welcome. If you're hired as a pixel pusher to execute someone's vision, then the R and D phase is mainly figuring out how to execute that idea, but just at the technical level. So yeah, very similar to what we were just talking about. Um, and then Pedro's following that up in terms of like selling ideas that in visual styles that you have yet to really come up with. If you can put together mood boards and, and such to really sell those ideas into the clients and yeah, like Kevin happy accidents. I'm sure, you know, I, we've probably all been there, right? Where we have this idea and then all of a sudden it kind of takes, you know, a, it starts drifting to this other thing because you've had that happy accident and it's better than something that you actually visioned and, and set out to do, you know? Um, do you have any examples of that or does anyone have any examples they would want to share about something like that? Yeah. Um, I don't want to steal the floor all the time. Um, but the uh, best example I have from a recent thing was the first live action uh, spot that we did for Razor. It was for their, it's called Project Lynette internally, but um, the Blade Stealth is like the smaller of the laptops and we did a, a live action spot and we were in the middle of trying to decide which uh, environment we wanted to sort of run with for the ending hero frame and some of these uh, rotating shots that we had around uh, some green screen talent that we had like on a spinning thing. We need to integrate them into these environments. And I remember I was sitting with Jeff and we were just cycling through them and we realized we should actually just switch them and use all of them. <laughs> but it was like just hiding layers in Photoshop and being like, be like this one, this one, this one. And it got so fast where I was like, okay, this one, this one, this one, and this one. And we realized that it would, uh, do that. So I'm going to grab the link to that. Uh, if somebody else wants to give give their uh, thing, and then I'll share that so you can see what I was talking about. But I'm going to shut up now. Yeah, I'll, I'll just continue monitoring the chat here too. Um, Pedro was just mentioning that something that struck him for, was from Somai's uh, presentation that he did with us last year. And when he's building up animatics and whatnot, he'll straight up just use clips from other animations and commercials and movies and whatnot that have maybe a similar camera move or something that he wants to reference. And he'll put that right in the animatic to sell the idea and sell the motion and all that, which, you know, it's pretty interesting because I feel like a lot of people outside of mood boards and whatnot feel like um, the, that creative needs to come directly from them. So it's interesting to see someone as high level as so my working with high level clients doing a workflow like that. Um, let's see. Anyone else have a mic today that would want to chime in? I see we've got quite a few people on today, but um, Anyone have uh, stories of hap happy accidents that have kind of made their way into the final project? Bueller, 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 Bueller. I see Tokyo just joined us. Chris, uh, do you ever have those moments where you're experimenting in Houdini and have that happy accident and then you're like, oh shit, all right, I'm going to roll with that. Yo, can you hear me? Yeah. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I don't have anything super specific, but um, I will say, and I think I've said this on here like maybe a couple of times before on like a previous meeting, but for me, uh, I definitely am a lot of the time when I'm like doing R&D for figuring out how to do a specific sort of look that they're asking for at work or whatever, I will, you know, take a couple passes and either I'll show them a version and they'll be like, no, that's not what we're looking for. Or I'll just make something cool that I know is not what they're looking for. And like either of those, I'll always take those hip files and just like 
drop them into a Google Drive box, save it for later, and then I can always revisit it when I'm back at home and I'm just like, right now I just want to screw around and make some sort of like experiments and stuff. Um, so that's like a really good way to sort of stockpile ideas uh, on top of sort of other methods. Um, so yeah, I'll try to think of other happy accident things though. Do you, I mean, you work quite a bit in studio. Do you ever get uh, a chance to participate in kind of the R and D phase of, of certain projects or whatnot? Or are you kind of hired in as like a hired gun? Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I would say, yeah, no, I totally get time to do R and D. I think especially when you're doing effect stuff, there is always a lot of R and D, um, particularly, and this is kind of one of my pet peeves when the creative director or whoever is like, yeah, we kind of want sort of this sort of idea. And like the more vague they are, like you're, the more R and D you're going to inevitably have to do. Whereas alternatively, there are times where I'll come in where it's like, hey, so another studio did this shot for this brand and they just basically want this recreated, but in this context. And when I have that reference, it's like, okay, I can see exactly how they did this. This is a pyro simulation that they meshed and then they, you know, rendered the volumes inside of that mesh. And then they also, you know, had like a layer of particles to come off of the cloth and blah, blah, blah. And just like, you can, you can really break it down and with those, it's super easy to just like, you know, kind of, it, it is a little bit nerve wracking at first being like, oh man, this is a lot of stuff. How do I figure this out? Um, and they'll like, you know, book me for like a month to figure it out. And then, you know, a week later, it's like, oh, okay, I have like 99% of this done. I just kind of have to tweak it at that point until it's exactly what they're happy with. So um, yeah, that's a lot easier. Although it's always more fun to get to do some R&D, uh, even though it is a little bit nerve wracking knowing that like you have to have something eventually you know, that is going to be what they want. And it's like hard to sort of figure out how to get the creative directors to sort of see exactly your process and like how um, certain things that you might be going for might be more attainable and, and more sort of art directable than other things. And anyway, so, yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually a, a, another interesting point in terms of like, you know, spending time to, um, you know, R and D certain techniques or whatnot, like being able to, you know, like doing it personally and for a personal project where you can kind of just make whatever you want. Right. But knowing that, you know, if you're on a personal or excuse me, a, a client project and whatever you're making is going to have to relate to the project or, you know, like sell something or, you know, be art directable. Um, I feel like there's more challenges in that than, you know, your personal project where you just do like a cool particle sim. You're like, yeah, that looks pretty cool. Like I'm happy with that. But when you have to answer to a client or like stay within a certain visual style or whatnot, I feel like um, those are somewhat creative barriers, but, staying in that box sometimes presents, you know, its own fun challenges that way because you have to think a little bit differently of how you're going to create that. Yeah. The, having that open sandbox. The cool thing about that is it like forces you to learn things that maybe you wouldn't have just sort of naturally figured out. So like, obviously when you're learning X particles or Houdini or whatever, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do liquid and I'm going to do this and I'm do that. And you don't know that like, Oh, I want to also learn how to make, you know, my own custom velocity fields that like do, you know, this specific thing or that specific thing. And when you have to figure that thing out to do a certain effect that they're looking for, and you find out that that's the thing that you need to learn to do that effect, then as soon as you learn that thing, you're like, oh, damn, this is a cool new thing I've learned. I'm going to save this and see what else I can do with this effect other than what they want me to do at the studio. Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, and then you just keep building on that. And Yeah. And then, and then also like, there's always stuff like, you know, the other day when you were talking about the the snowball thing, that ended up being like, yeah, I think I've watched enough videos to sort of know generally how to start this. And it was like fun to just sort of like jump in and try to really quickly tackle it. But then I ended up spending a little bit more time on it and got a, a bit of a nicer render than the one that I showed you that I, I, I should I should pass over. I'll probably put it on Instagram or something today. But, nice. um, but yeah, that's always like a lot of fun too, is like helping other people solve problems and stuff. Uh, I mean, that's the whole like, in the Houdini community, there's always been Odd Force, which is like a big 
forum of people trying to kind of help figure out how to do cool effects. And that's always a really inspiring way to sort of figure those things out. And there's tons of happy accidents on there happening like all the time in this respect. Nice. Yeah, totally. I see Kevin's popped a few links in the, in the chat here. I think one was the, is the video that you were referring to earlier? Yeah. The, uh, the ending hero, uh, the product hero at the end was uh, cycling through environments on a split screen because the entire concept for the thing was uh, a split screen. But then we, I said it was a happy accident when we were choosing this environment where we were just like, why don't we do this thing where we cycle through them because that might be cool. And that decision came from our process of trying to decide. So that was a, a good example of a happy accident. But then I also realized it, it's been enough time since that project that I don't think that anybody I know will get upset if I share the rough previs stuff. Uh, that, so that's the second link is you can see uh, sort of like the early not the earliest stages, but like even the boards are still in the editorial arrangement. We were trying to figure out the pacing of the cut and defining like what shots, because I don't think we ever go into um, any CG blind without frame ranges. And we, we try to lock uh, picture first and editorial and then build what we need uh, every now and then. I think we'll just sort of like, all right, well, we know we're going to need some short, sort of shot like this. So, uh, we never have a clip that's longer than five seconds, so we'll just make a five-second clip and figure out where it fits in there. But that's also a part of the R&D is uh, editorial, at least when it comes to animation and video and story. Sure. But, but yeah, I just I kind of I was excited for like, hey, I can finally show this. Uh, look at how rough it was. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thanks for sharing that. But yeah, that that was one of my my favorite happy accidents because. Uh, I don't know. It was, it was received well. And I think like when you, when you have a client project at least and, and everybody's already settled on something and you just have one of those oops moments and it works and then you got to sort of like resell them on the idea or explain why this works. Or maybe they, maybe they also see like, Oh, we didn't think of that. You know, like that's, mm -hmm. that's always a fun moment. Um, can be challenging, I guess, if every, you know, like if it's somebody else's creative baby and you're like, but what about this? And they're like, but it's, it's mine, <laughs> my idea. I don't know. That's one of my pet peeves. I, I like what Tokyo was saying about um, purposely trying to do something else. And it kind of reminded me, I don't know if, if anybody remembers like in World War Z, the movie, uh, if you haven't seen it, no spoilers, it's a good movie. But um, the, one, of the, one of the panels, I, I think when they were trying to discover uh, something about like this phenomenon that was happening the zombies they uh there's a moment where they have the rule of the seventh man where it's the job of the seventh person to absolutely take what everybody else doubts and assume that it's real and that tokyo thing about like doing something intentionally different kind of reminds me of that and i feel like i, I actually when i heard him say that i like i want to do that more i want to take one of those times and just purposely do something totally different to see if it works or it doesn't and uh I don't know, so I really liked that from from Tokyo, but yeah, I don't know. That was that's pretty much all that was. Cool. Yeah. No. Thanks for sharing. Go ahead, Elizabeth. Yeah, I have a an example. Um, just another another thing I heard in an interview where um, uh, Barton da is it Damer was the uh, interviewee, and um, he just this is just another kind of off the cuff remark where it was just like, wow, you really, you really researched that, didn't you, you know, or his team did, which was he, he's, he talked about making a move from doing uh, fewer, fewer po effects in post, fewer, fewer treatments in post and fewer, fewer um, multi-pass renders and doing most, most things in camera, uh, which of course isn't a literal camera. It's a, you know, C4D camera probably, uh, and it's just sort of off the cuff and saying, oh yeah, well we, we're making this switch, right? Or we're, we're making this change. We're doing more, more of this, less of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's just sort of the thing that like, I'd love to hear more about how you come to that conclusion, whether or not you come to that conclusion based on uh, 
hearing your your employees talk about it or re reviewing their work or whether you come to that conclusion by doing a good kind of post-mortem on a project and go, you know what, we wasted a lot of time on this multi-pass thing and it sucks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just that's the kind of thing that's like, it sounded kind of on the clock and I don't know how for larger studio studios bigger than one person, how you manage that and just, you know, that also falls under the R&D category. So. Sure. Just another thing to think about. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And, you know, from what I remember him talking about too, is that, you know, like if they can accomplish, you know, most of the look in camera, it does save time and post and all that. And especially with some of the product rendering things they're doing. Um, I don't know if it was Barton who said this, or maybe I'm confusing it with someone else, but the, you know, the more post-processing that goes into this stuff, the less realistic it actually looks just he because. He did say that. Yeah, yeah. He did say that. So like, um, and that makes total sense. But again, that's a trial and error type thing. You right, know? right. Unless you really push the image in post with all different passes and whatnot. And then you can kind of compare that with your raw render straight out of Redshift or Octane or whatever. Um, then you can really compare and contrast there and see what's working, what's not. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely a whole other, you know, side of R&D, if you will, you know. Right. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. Anyone else? Uh, I, I, I think that that point that Bart made actually is super, super interesting because um, I don't like the, the whole compositing thing. I've always been sort of, I think everyone in our, or, or a lot of people in our sort of uh, area where we're all sort of independent artists for the most part. Everybody's like, you know, using Redshift and Octane and all these engines that push things out so fast and are so photo real now. It's like um, a lot of people want to like avoid doing compositing because it's just like an extra step at the end. Um, and I think that a lot of the time, yeah, like a hundred percent makes a lot more sense to not do it when you're considering the fact that these render engines are all, totally physically based and you know like once you start doing the light linking and doing things like that you're not like you know being true to reality anymore um but at the same time like you know it just goes on a project by project basis where it's like if you need to have a spot like we've done before at this one studio that i work at um where it's like the same shot and they're cutting between that rendered a bunch of different times with a bunch of different color palettes. It's like way better to be able to tweak that in post than have to render it like 50 times. Um, right. And, you know, things like that. Uh, and there's definitely ways to composite it where you're not necessarily making it less realistic or making it, you're making it more realistic in certain cases, but yeah, it's, it's sort of on like a case by case basis. And it also like depends on like, how much do you want this to be like art directed beyond like what's, possible realistically and how much of this do you want to just be like as physically accurate as possible mm -hmm. yeah totally and and penny you make a good point in the chat i don't know if you want to uh kind of elaborate more but you had mentioned that it comes down to schedule pipeline and your client really yeah um i i think that that's all like uh um uh was that that was tokyo that was just talking right mm -hmm. um very much like on the specs of your project, like what your pipeline is, um, where in a project a client is going to possibly like nitpick more. Like I think that um, in a lot of the stuff that we're doing right now, that's especially like Redshift, you know, like uh, uh, like these super realistic renders, um, it gives us the opportunity to focus more on maybe the animation of something or something that's happening farther uh, farther up pipe, right? And so like we end up foregoing compositing and like all the little like post stuff that um, uh, is just a different stage of the pipeline, right? So like, but if you have a client where you're doing like just a product shot or something like that, I see like you might choose to put more of your focus at that stage of the pipeline. You might wanna be like doing more of the like, oh, well we can, we can do all this, you know, spec adjustment and like reflection strength and all that thing in post and we don't have to go back to like rendering. Mm -hmm. And so like 
that comes down to like, what is your studio based on? Like, does your studio have like a really crazy GPU rendering pipeline where it's actually easier to just keep, like tweak that stuff in Redshift? Um, what is your timetable? Do you actually have time to sit down with the clients or like you need like a really fast, you know, uh, uh, like, like post is so great for when the renders are too crazy to like work with the client and make those changes. And like Redshift has shifted the game, but, or not just Redshift, but GPU rendering. Um, but I, I think like, you know, like that, the, uh, circling back to just what R&D is, I think you're taking into account the job, the client, what your pipeline is, what your strengths are. Maybe you just don't even have that strong of a compositor and you have a really great, you know, like mm -hmm, uh, a lighter material maker or something like that. Or opposite, maybe, you know, like you're, uh, uh, you're buying only your materials or something like that, throwing it on your model, doing a render, and your machine is not that powerful, but you're like really great at comping, you know, or really great at that. Like that might be how you R&D mm -hmm. your pipeline, right? Totally. Yeah, and I mean, just looking at the R&D, just general topic too, I mean, has anyone done kind of R&D and experimenting, you know, experimented with their pipeline, right? Like, um, you know, going from, you know, speaking personally, going from, you know, the whole standard physical render to then Octane now to Redshift, it's like my pipeline is much, you know, it's varying per project per se, but like also per renderer and all that. And I've really had to like tweak how I, I do things, you know, depending on what software or renderer I use, but it's also hard to do that on a client job, right? You don't want to like fuck that up and you don't want to, um, you know, be on the clock per se for them, you know, paying you to experiment with that stuff. Um, you need to be, you know, ready to turn that stuff out. But, um, but yeah, um, I don't know if anyone else has thoughts on this. It looks like Tokyo put something in the pipeline. There it says, yeah, pipeline, pipeline R&D is huge. Sure, uh, yeah. Um, I'll just say real quick, I've been like, this has been my main thing recently is experimenting with the pipeline. And it's evolved so much because I used to be like entirely in Maya and now I'm basically transferring my pipeline to be where I'm starting like, and this is for like mainly for like a personal project for like my own stuff. Cause pipelines vary too, if you're in a different studio or whatever, but for my own personal pipeline, it's looking like right now, what I'm trying to make it be is I'll start with model my characters and stuff, which I actually start in uh, Oculus medium. Now, then I bring that stuff into ZBrush clean that up, add the UVs in there. ZBrush is really amazing. We're quickly doing the retopology, adding the detail, um, getting some nice displacement maps and stuff, and uh, getting kind of quick UVs, like all without having to like do the painstaking retopo process and things like that. Um, and then uh, after that, bring it into Blender is sort of my, my main thing that I'm trying to transition away from Maya with for character animation. So I'm doing my rigging and uh, animation in there, then bringing that into Houdini, where I'm now setting up my whole scene, kind of can nicely procedurally scatter things and do things like that, like you know other people would probably do with like Octane Scatter and Cinema or other ways. Um, but there's like lots of nice kind of benefit to having Houdini be at the end of my pipeline, where I'm sort of controlling everything, and, and I and I sort of pick that up from. Uh, at Framestore when we were working on this spot where normally every spot before this, they would do um, like effects and stuff in Houdini and then bring that back into Maya afterwards and then render it out of Maya and have all the lighters work in Maya. And I worked on the first spot there at the New York one where they uh, did all the lighting in Houdini instead because they were doing these grooms with these beavers and it would have taken way too long to like, you know, round trip everything from Maya to Houdini back to Maya and then light and render it. Um, and there was enough people doing lighting who uh, already knew Houdini that we could kind of just add a couple of other Maya lighters on and teach them how to light in Houdini because it's not any more complicated than lighting in any other program. It's the same principles no matter what you're doing. Um, but yeah, having those kind of controls in Houdini at the end has been super clutch. And then now I'm kicking everything else out of Redshift um, at the end of that, oh, the one other thing I, I added recently is Substance Painter too, which is amazing for textures, of course. But um, 
that's sort of like how my whole pipeline is looking right now for my own sort of character animation stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just evolved a ton and it's super good to like be keeping your eyes out and seeing what makes sense the most as the best tool for each part of your pipeline and seeing how you can adapt that. But at the same time, what I'm also realizing is having too many programs in your pipeline can be a bit of a slowdown as well. So it makes sense to be able to kind of do as much as you can in one program too. Um, And I'm kind of trying to use Houdini as like my home base right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people use cinema as their home base. A lot of people use Maya as their home base and, you know, like we were just saying, round trip things from that to Houdini or whatever. Um, but yeah, it would be amazing if I could do all the character animation and rigging stuff in Houdini as well, or if I could do it in cinema too, um, which is just, it's missing a few tools that are preventing me from using that. I tried for a while. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's always good to be experimenting with that stuff and messing around. And I'm always curious to see sort of what other people's setups are for that. And then the one, one last thing that I added this past weekend actually was, uh, I got into command line rendering with Redshift uh, and Houdini. And that for me, I've been surprised is a a game changer because it's shaving off a little bit of render time by not having the program open and not having as much RAM being eaten up and all that stuff. But also it's so much more stable. Like I was getting these crashes when I was like rendering overnight. I, and, and doing the command line stuff, my stuff has been able to render way longer. Like, for example, when I was doing the snowball thing that I showed you, I was using, you know, I think the grains were uh, 0.2 units per grain size or whatever. Um, and then I uh, rendered that out and Houdini crashed after frame, I think, 60. And that was what I showed you guys. But mm-hmm. um, then I have the grain size and I rendered it. So like twice as or maybe four times as many grains, I think. Um, is the math there. And then uh, I rendered it out with the command line and it just was able to just keep going all the way through. Like I just stopped it once it hit like frame 176. I was like, I don't need any more frames now. This is good. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, So that's been a huge benefit. Nice. We've also been in the the midst of uh, migrating over to Houdini um, for our small team. And we're we're in the middle, like we had a little bit of downtime uh, in between projects because we're actually in the process of, uh, well, I'm in Boston at the moment, but we're moving and opening up our office in Laguna Beach and California. So from Steamboat, Colorado to, to there. And in that downtime, a lot of my personal time has been on ironing out the kinks of our like automated workflows. Like when I was first learning uh, 3D, obviously like I started like a lot of people with Grayscale Gorilla tutorials. And uh, one of the things that I think got hammered into me or that I remembered the most or took away was like Nick's uh, hate for doing anything twice because it's a computer. And if you have to do something more than one time, then you're kind of doing it wrong. Like it's a computer, it can do it for you. And so I've been sort of like, I guess, actively R&Ding all the time, like automating things. And I have a like I guess a special love for the pipeline process about as much as I love making call sheets. I'm one of those (laughs) weird people, you know, the pre-production is awesome. And the more that I plan for something, the more time I can save and collecting like even node presets in Redshift as like X pool, uh, saving them as X pool um, entries in cinema or HDAs. So the power of HDAs and PDG in Houdini has been amazing for figuring out like, uh, integrating our own project management and like uh, scene setup and, and all these things and asset management and all of those things. And um, kind of creating that new unified system has been the biggest challenge that I'm still in the middle of working out for how, when we do plug in our new uh, systems at the office, uh, how are we going to operate moving forward and be able to integrate with uh, not only remote team members, but uh, new team members that will come on site as well and yeah I, I i love anything pipeline related so that topic but i mean like r d sometimes just comes at you in different different ways whether it's creative development or process development pipeline stuff i actually i have my door being knocked on right now because i have to leave but i wanted to say goodbye and uh touch on that and tokyo you're awesome mark you're awesome, awesome. Penny, thanks you're for awesome. joining us today awesome. kevin appreciate yeah, it no problem thanks i love hanging out with night. you guys when i can so Yeah, right on. Good luck today. Thanks.
All right. Peace out. Um, just look and see if anyone, let's see. Yeah, what's Elizabeth and Penny, what do your pipelines look like? Uh, well, I just uh, accidentally screen shared um, <laughs> something. I didn't really do what I was expecting to do in Zoom, but um, so my situation is changing a whole bunch because um, I just jumped into um, a contest basically. And so I have the full studio version of Cinema 4D and Octane now only for six months. So uh, then I have to cough up the, the bucks if I, if I love it or um, slink back into my little 2D corner <laughs> if I don't love it. So um, I've got this concept that I've been kicking around a whole bunch that I'd love to, um, I'm just going to pitch it to like every client gets this pitch, which is the, let's do reflections, you know, see yourself in session, you know, at an insert company name here, see yourself at Toyota, see yourself at city college, see yourself wearing that hat. You know, basically it's the, it's, so the concept of the pitch is to have the idea of reflections uh, be reinforced through the promotional materials and we get um, get something uh, you'd have a reflection in the the way the visuals would work is that the reflections would start being super separated like someone staring at a window and or a mirror and the reflection being back and then there would be this like semi permeable membrane event that would happen uh, so the reflection the reflected material would kind of interact with the real material uh, later so where this reacts to um, pipeline is it's unclear to me whether or not this is a 2D idea or a 3D idea, right? It's unclear to me whether or not this is something that is done in post or is done in camera, right? Do I literally have two planes, you know, working in reflection of each other and actually do it with literal reflections or do I do it in post where I have another uh, render that's pulled up as a horizontal layer or another vertical layer for that reflection. So mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of interesting because I still have this concept and as my pipeline changes throughout, you know, the upcoming months during this little victory lap I'm taking, like, how can I do this concept in all those different ways? You know, like, what do I, what am I really selling here? Am I selling a 2D concept or am I selling a 3D concept? So it's mm -hmm. kind of an interesting process. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great challenge ahead of you. And, you know, yeah. this really, this topic plays in perfectly to that in terms of like, all right, I mean, being able to have Octane now and see a little bit more, you know, real time feedback and whatnot uh, should allow you to iterate those ideas and really, you know, try a lot of stuff out in, you know, a faster way than before. Um, but yeah, who knows? I mean, once you dive into it, you might find that it's better accomplished via 2D or whatnot, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, you know, I think when it comes down to pipeline, it's, you just got to experiment with that and see what, uh, what works best, render times, et cetera, et cetera, you know? So it's a, it's a good challenge and you'll have to keep us posted on what you're starting to find with that. Sure, sure. I'm sure you'll see it in my reel next year during the famous reel review. Nice. <laughs> Someone's going to bite eventually. <laughs> Penny, what do you do? What's, what's your current pipeline right now in terms of, you know, you're freelancing now, right? You're full-time freelance. Uh, yeah. I just went back. Um, my pipeline is, I'm like generalist through and through, right? Like I don't think I've ever been, super great at any one thing um or like super focused but um so like i started working in 2002 and uh mostly after effects back then and like the adobe stuff and then i added cinema to that um and, and that's really just been my base um and then given a project uh like you know i've i've pulled in uh tfd for a thing that i needed you know some kind of pyro and like i learn it quick and then i do it on the project and then i i couldn't tell you anything about it anymore <laughs> like it's completely out of sight out of mind um i've been trying to get a little bit more involved in um 
like figuring out how to integrate GPU rendering. Cause I mean, it's just such a game changer in terms of what is possible. Like forever, I was just like standard and physical renderer. And uh, uh, you know, like obviously like rendering anything in, in like physical renderer with GI is the most impossible painful thing ever, unless it's like a really short commercial. Like I would use it for like an end tag product thing or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and like my friend, like, I don't know if you know John Robeson. He's, he, he makes fun of me constantly <laughs> for, like, sticking with that and, like, gives me all this shit for, like, you know, like, so that's a lot of ambient occlusion you have in there. And I'm like, well, I, any way I can fake it, right? Um, so, like, I, I, you know, for a decade and a half, I've been just, like, sticking to, like, if I do particles, it's in particular. If I do, you know, anything kind of realistic, I get as far as I can in physical and then finish the rest in comp. Um, uh, but I, I really do like being a generalist and I'm, I'm a little bit like I, I've, you know, I've downloaded new, uh, not nuke, um, Houdini for years and years. And then I finally bought the indie copy this year. I still haven't opened it. Like <laughs> I just, I have so much, you know, I've got fusion underneath on my laptop. I've got like a, you know, the demo version of nuke long six expired, like, you know, 10 times over. <laughs> Uh, but so my pipeline, like I try to keep it simple and that's why I love After Effects and, um, and cinema is just how versatile, like I can keep my pipeline. Um, but I'm also never asked to do anything insane. Like I don't ever do, you know, shoot commercials where you can see the, the like microfibers weave and stuff like that. That's generally not, um, you know, like where I'm, where I'm going to shine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like, I, I feel that if I need to do some kind of character animation, I can probably, like, you know, like, figure it out. Or I'll uh, see what the, the, the quickest turnaround methodology is um, that doesn't involve a super technical answer if I can help it. You know, like, I've used Duik on a few projects, but I'm probably, like, if this is, you know, Duik, I've probably gone this far into it, right? Just enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I just, I don't know. I try to keep it loose and... Um, uh, you know, if I really have something where I need something crazy, like I'll expand my pipeline by getting someone else who has has those skills and those tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, I'm thinking too, just R and D in like a uh, in like a 2D sense of things would be like do it versus rubber hose or whatnot. You know, like which one's going to be better? Like, all right, let me rig these characters and see what controls. Like, can I get away with rubber hose for this? Or do I need to, I, I don't know. There's so many different ways to uh, kind of approach certain projects. It's, you know, I think some of the R&D with that is um, just figuring out what you're comfortable with, what you're able to achieve with, you know, certain programs or plugins and whatnot. Um, and, you know, similar to what we mentioned earlier, well, you can, you can find, you can figure out these looks and you can do it with physical render. Right. But like, it's going to go a lot faster if you have, you know, a third party, uh, GPU render or whatnot. Um, so again, it's just, you know, experimenting and doing some research development with those, you know, product, uh, products. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think this is such a broad topic and I would love to try to get someone on um, that like really uses R&D as like kind of the base um, of their, you know, um, of their workflow. So we'll, we'll continue to reach out and try to get some people um, on board for that. Um, but we just hit the hour mark. So I don't know if anyone else has anything that they would like to contribute um, by all means chime in now. And um, we don't have too many links today, but um, I'm happy to share some of those with you as well. Um, it looks like Elizabeth shared a, a mood board for the, that reflections idea. So um, that links in the chat, we'll add that. Well, I'll keep that in the chat. I'll talk to you after Elizabeth about whether or not you want to share that publicly or whatnot. But um, if people want to look at that and uh, even help. Yeah, I don't think it would make sense publicly. So. Yeah. <laughs> Just so well, you know what I was talking maybe about. Maybe people could chime in and say like, hey, this is how I might tackle it or maybe look into it like this or, you know. Yeah. So. Um, 
but cool. It looks like Tokyo just dropped something in here too. Yo, yeah, I, uh, this is, oh, yeah. yeah, I posted a little video. Um, this was for a friend who is pretty new to 3D who wanted to have an effect where he had a walk cycle where a guy was walking and as his feet comes down to touch the ground, a foot comes out of that foot and then he like his feet have feet and then it was just like a crazy sort of effect and i was like that would be a tricky thing to do you could do that maybe with like pose morphs or blend shapes or whatever but i was suggesting doing like a volume meshing thing and i don't know i didn't know if blender had that which is what he was using uh so i made this video and it's pretty much just breaking down the concept of like voxels and volumes and things like that and it's sort of handy stuff to know and i'm not sure for people who are just using the Cinema 4D volume stuff, if um, how much of that, because uh, for me, like one thing that's been great about Houdini is that through learning that, I feel like it really has helped me sort of like wrap my head around exactly how things are working under the hood. Um, so if you're curious about that, it could be a useful video. Or also if you just want to see how to recreate some of the volume measure stuff in Houdini, it's pretty easy to do. So it's a good sort of like intro-ish tutorial um, but, uh, yeah. And then I, I would also just plug again, Houdini nerd.com, which is my, uh, Google doc of learning resources that I've been continuing to organize and stuff. And so if anyone is interested in trying to get into Houdini and wants to do some fun R and D shit, um, check that out and maybe go through some of the beginning stuff. Of course, it's like a time intensive thing, but, uh, yeah. yeah, a lot of good resources on there for sure. Um, cool. Well, all right. Well, just wrapping up today. Um, one thing that uh, I guess it was mentioned at, um, or on the recent school of motion podcast, I haven't listened to it, but Liam was telling me about it is this website called spectacle. It's called spectacle.is. I'll drop the link in the chat, but, uh, it's pretty cool and kind of falls in line a little bit with what we we're talking about today. Essentially what it is is a curated site of kind of the best, you know, product and kind of marketing videos on the web. And they have all different collections and why stuff worked, why it didn't, you know, what got traction, what didn't. Um, so, you know, in terms of like R&D with just ideas and um, storytelling and stuff like that, this might be something worth um, checking out. So I had never heard of it, um, but it seems pretty interesting. So it seems also similar to the, is it ad week that kind of does like the top commercials of the week or the month or the year or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, this just, um, ends up being a little bit more curated, I believe. So worth checking out. Um, we'll also have a link to the video that, um, that Kevin posted earlier and the, the Houdini video that Tokyo was just talking about. Um, does anyone else have any interesting links or news or things that popped up for them this week that they want to share? If not, totally cool. Well, we can keep, uh, if you do have something that comes up, shoot us a email or whatnot and I'll add it to the notes for this week. But um, I don't watch Game of Thrones. I'm not gonna go in that rabbit hole right now. I know like I saw a lot of shit online, so we'll see how that all kind of uh, uh, transpires here in the next 24 hours, whether people are excited or freaking out on how it went, but, um, let's see. One other link I had was, let me find it. So this got posted in the MoGraph Slack. Um, this guy, Christian, uh, has made like this, he's taken all these notes, and whatnot and just like uh, different workflow things in cinema and Houdini, Illustrator, InDesign, Lightroom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he's just kept these notes throughout the years and he kind of assembled them all in a web page. 
and it's pretty interesting. Some of the stuff is quite dated, but um, you could still go through and he's got shortcuts and like different tips on how to create clouds or fog in cinema and just random stuff. It seems just like kind of a, just like a brain explosion on and like note taking that's now accessible. I'll put that in the chat right now and I'll add that to the notes uh, for this episode. Um, so other than that, um, if you have anything else that you want to reach out to us about any guests or topic ideas or anything like that, uh, shoot us an email info at, mondaymeeting.org or you can reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, we're on a bunch of slacks. Uh, Myself and Liam are both on all of those slacks. Um, Trying to think what else next week we've got. So let me say this. We've got a lot of uh, topics and things coming up on our calendar. Next week, we have a topic of like kind of directing motion graphics, like how do you come up with the visual ideas and whatnot. And uh, we've reached out to a few people and we'll have to see who could possibly make that call. Um, But other than that, we have some other stuff coming up um, just in terms of like talking about our goals for the year, kind of recapping those, you know, kind of seeing where we're at with all of them. We had uh, kind of that goal uh, meeting right around the first of the year. And now we're about six months in. So to revisit that be a lot of fun. And then we'll have some other stuff coming up that is more, you know, um, kind of business focused as well, like freelancer turn to small studio, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So be sure to uh, join us for those calls coming up. Um, yeah, as Tokyo said, six months into 2019, what 2019, what the fuck? It's crazy how fast it's gone. Um, and Elizabeth has a great suggestion for a topic of just, you know, piggybacking off what we talked about today, uh, kind of doing a pipeline show and tell, uh, that might be interesting to get, um, some people to either, write something up or share their screen or, you know, talk a little bit more in depth on like how they approach projects. Um, yeah, I know. think screen shares would be really spectacular. I don't know if people are ready for that, but I am <laughs> as a viewer. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. Love that. So yeah. another thing that could be really cool. I don't know how feasible this is because all of the pipeline people I know are full time, but like getting someone who has been like a pipeline team lead or something like that on to talk about that whole process would be like super, super cool since I know it was crazy uh, when I got to work at Framestore for a little bit, getting to like work with some of the people on the pipeline team and have them be the ones like in-house developing tools for us to be using and things like that. I don't know how like fully relevant it would be to, you know, people who don't obviously have their own pipeline teams and stuff, but I just think it's kind of interesting stuff. Yeah, but that might be a a great, you know, guest to have on and even, you know, talk broadly about what that person does at said studio or whatnot, but also like how can, you know, a small team, whether it's an individual or just a handful of freelancers working together, like what's a pipeline that you can create to all work together, you know? Um, So that might be something worth uh, approaching and talking about. So, um Other than that, really appreciate everyone showing up every week and all the listeners that listen to this on the podcast. I mean, I call it a podcast, but I don't know. We just post the fucking meeting and uh, people seem to enjoy that. So cool. Uh, We're psyched to have you guys all involved. And um, until next week, have a great week. Kick ass at whatever you're working on. And uh, we'll see you next Monday.